0: Based on what I'm about to tell you, uh, just remember her words, if you would, (laughs) because I'm going to start out telling you about how I judge other people. Um, First, I want to say thanks to Liz and the Liz Nance band that you just enjoyed because that was phenomenal, and and, in just a bit, you'll hear a song that she learned just for today, so just double thanks to her. So here's my story about judging others. I was a first grade teacher for years in Liberty, which is a small town, much like Bryson City. And every year, as teachers know, we would experience a head lice outbreak where we had to examine our kids for knits, you know, the eggs that stick to the hair. We'd send them home. We'd get some assurance that they had been treated, and then we'd welcome them back, always balancing the question of should we treat ourselves and, of course, just, making, just me talking about it, I'm sure, is making your head itch, as it did ours. So it was always a toss-up about what to do. So you know when something makes us uncomfortable, sometimes we're likely to make a joke of it. Well, we three teachers in the first grade would joke that it was somehow worse to find the live bugs in the hair rather than just the eggs. We turned head lice into an occasion for judgment. Do you ever exercise judgment on each other? Not long ago, I walked up um, on someone who was standing in front of the ice cream at Ingalls, and she turned around and saw me, and she said, don't judge me. (laughs) (laughs) It never crossed my mind. Well, our innocent first graders, with their heads occasionally full of bugs, could have said, don't judge me. And of course, as you know, what goes around comes around, as I was about to find out. My son hit the first grade when I was pregnant with my youngest. And on this particular weekend, he scratched his toe headed blonde hair. White blonde hair is the hardest to get nits out of. He scratched his toe headed blonde hair just all weekend. I missed every signal. And on Sunday, late on Sunday night, he said, My head is itching so bad, I cannot stand it. Okay, a light bulb. Now it's Sunday night, this is in the 80s. Town just like Bryson City, nothing is open. So, of course, you can't go buy any shampoo. But I remembered reading that you could use kerosene as sort of a stopgap until you could get to the real shampoo. It was also supposedly the only thing you could use on your head if you were pregnant. And I'm not making this up. <laughs> so, here it is Sunday night. I wash his hair with kerosene. And the bathtub comes alive with six to eight bugs. It was judgment time. I was that mother and we were that household. So today we want to continue in Matthew 5 known as the Sermon on the Mount. And our text today includes verses 27 through 32. You'll find them on your table and they'll be on the screen as well. You know the next commandment pretty well too. This is Jesus talking. Don't go to bed with another spouse. But don't think you've preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those leering looks that you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. Let's not pretend that this is easier than it really is. If you want to live a morally pure life, here's what you have to do. You have to blind your right eye the moment you catch it in a lustful leer. You have to choose to live one-eyed or else be dumped on a moral trash pile. And you have to chop off your right hand the moment you notice it raised threateningly. Better a bloody stump than your entire being discarded for good in the dump. Remember the scripture that says, Whoever divorces his uh, wife, let him do it legally. Giving her divorce papers and her legal rights. Too many of you are using that as a cover for selfishness and whim, pretending to be righteous just because you are legal. Please, no more pretending. If you divorce your wife, you're responsible for making her an adulteress, unless she has already made herself that by sexual promiscuity. And if you marry such a divorced adulteress, you're automatically an adulterer yourself. You can't use legal cover to mask a moral failure. So, Jesus sort of likes to blow things up, don't you think? Okay, let's review all the moral failures that just those brief six verses present to us going to bed with another person's wife, going to bed with someone else who is not your spouse, leering looks, imagining going to bed with someone who is not your spouse. Then it looks like what gets thrown in is the moral failure of raising your hand threateningly to another. I don't know if that means abuse or aggression. Making your spouse an adulterer or an adulteress by divorcing them. And making yourself an adulterer or adulteress by remarriage to someone who has been married before. Are you clicking off those things in that list that you're not guilty of? When Jeff asked me to speak this weekend, these were the next verses in the sequence. But he said, graciously, <laughs> you can talk about anything from the Sermon of the Mount if these verses made me uncomfortable. But from my point of view, as you're about to find out, I thought I was probably the only one of Jeff, Jody, or I who should speak on these verses. Because I am clearly divorced and remarried. Over the past few years, as I've watched Jeff lead us, sometimes kicking and screaming from our evangelical roots into a perhaps new to us scriptural frame of reference of love and inclusion, I've come to understand the potential death of something else, and that's judgment. If you move toward God-generated love for each other, you will not be able to sustain your secret life of judgment. Last Wednesday night here, Terry Hanna, the pastor at Bryson City Presbyterian Church, presented to our group on being a female in the pastorate and all that entails. And this question was asked, what group of people have been the most critical of your position as a female pastor? Without hesitation, she said, conservative Christians. That takes my breath. Those looking in at our church or other churches, wouldn't hesitate to use that label for us. Their experience with Christians may have been on the receiving end of harsh judgment for this or that moral failure. And it may be be no different for us on the inside. We're routinely subjected to judgment from each other for our real or perceived moral failures. Terry said that her favorite female in the New Testament is the woman at the well in John 4. I want to tell you that story. Jesus realized that the Pharisees were keeping count of the baptisms that he and John performed. See, we were competing in biblical times. Although his disciples, not Jesus, were doing the baptizing, they were still keeping count. They had posted the score that Jesus was ahead, turning him and John into rivals in the eyes of the people. So Jesus took his disciples, left the Judean countryside, and went back to Galilee. To get there, he had to pass through Samaria. He came into Sychar, a Samaritan village that bordered the field Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was still there. And Jesus, worn out from the trip, sat down at the well around noon. A woman, a Samaritan, came to draw water. Jesus said, would you give me a drink of water? His disciples had gone to the village to buy food for lunch. The Samaritan woman taken aback. How come you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Because Jews in those days wouldn't be caught dead talking to Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the generosity of God and who I am, you would be asking me for a drink and I would give you fresh, living water. The woman said, sir, you don't even have a bucket to draw with. And this well is deep. So how are you going to get this living water? Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob who dug this well and drank from it? He and his sons and livestock and passed it down to us? Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again and again. Anyone who drinks the water I give will never thirst, not ever. The water I give will be an artesian spring within, gushing fountains of endless life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so I'll never get thirsty, won't ever have to come back to this well again. He said, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she said. That's nicely put, I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and you're living with now is not your husband. You spoke the truth there, sure enough. So you're a prophet, she said. Well, well tell me this. Our ancestors worshipped God at this mountain, but you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place for worship, right? Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you Samaritans will worship the Father neither here at this mountain nor there in Jerusalem. You worship guessing in the dark. We Jews worship in the clear light of day. God's way of salvation is made available through the Jews. But the time is coming and has in fact come when, that, when, you're, when what you're called will not matter. And where you go to worship will not matter as well. It's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before him in their worship. God is sheer being itself, spirit. Those who worship him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. The woman said, I don't know about that. I do know that the Messiah is coming. When he arrives, we'll get the whole story. Jesus says, I am he. You don't have to wait any longer or look any further. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked. They couldn't believe he was talking to that kind of woman. No one said what they were thinking, but their faces showed it. The woman took the hint and left. In her confusion, she left her water pot. But back in the village, she told the people, Come see a man who knew all the things I did, who knows me inside and out. Do you think this could be the Messiah? And they went out to see for themselves. Terry called this lady the first evangelist. Five husbands, living with a man, born a Samaritan, moral failure after moral failure, born in the wrong ethnic group, yet Jesus engaged her, breaking every judgment rule in the house. My heart breaks when I read that the look on the disciples' face drove her away. Even though she had been commissioned by Jesus himself to go and tell others his good news. Here's an experiment. If I told you I'd been married five times. Like this woman. As opposed to say one. Two maybe. Is there a secret place inside you that would be thinking either. Wow. Glad that's not me. Or. Or. The more marriages, like the more bugs, the more marriages, the greater moral failure you are. I'm happily married. And next month we celebrate our eighth anniversary. So you could easily calculate that this must be at least my second marriage. Definitely I have grandchildren and grandchildren. What you might not know is that it's my fourth marriage. Does that change your perception of me? Is there a look on your face, like the look on the disciples' face? It has been hard fought on my part to believe this, but what I know for sure is that Jesus doesn't look at me differently. My version of brokenness might be than yours, but we are broken together just the same. And Jesus doesn't look differently at you either. So where does that leave us as we relate to each other? What is the point of this part of the Sermon on the Mount beyond where and where not to lie at night? I was in Austin, Texas last weekend visiting my daughter. Something about how she described this certain book made me order it and sit down with it right away when I got it on Thursday. I finished it yesterday morning and understood why God may have sent me in that unexpected direction. In his book, When Breath Becomes Air, Paul Kalanithi is on the brink of becoming a celebrated and skilled neurosurgeon and neuroscientist, about to embark embark on a career years in the making when the unthinkable happens. Lung cancer so aggressive and rapid that he barely gets out of his residency before he loses his battle. While learning, first of all, all about death from the neurosurgeon's point of view, he then incredibly faces death from a personal point of view. The result is transforming. He renders more life out of impending death than he ever could have from his doctor platform. He carries us with words from the facts of death that he had in his career to the transcendence of life and love Of family and of faith. What if. The litany of moral failures in scripture. And you know them from the old testament to the new. List after list of our moral failures. What if those are the facts. Then what if the transcendence of the scriptures. Is redemption. For all who will receive it. Facts yes. Moral failures are facts. They are indisputable in the light of the very specific law that we can read. But this something greater, this redemption, is that our true calling to tap into? What if we are the bearers of that good news? What if regardless of our list of divorces, adultery, or any other moral failure, we are equipped in the eyes of Jesus? We're equipped to be his evangelists, just like the woman at the well. Not to go measure moral failure, but to lead people into this transcendence of redemption. Someone once told me that God cannot use people who are divorced. His words didn't need to impact me negatively because for years I saw in the mirror my statistics rather than my person, my value, my redemption. The guy was wrong, of course. But words can hit their mark It simply fed into my judgment That I'd already tapped into as a young teacher Sometimes categorizing children by their bugs Forgetting in that moment the God image That they carry through their gifts and uniqueness My journey into divorce And becoming an adulteress By the Bible's legal standards Was my bug-laden picture Of myself. Unworthy compared to others. Forgetting my uniqueness in Christ. We spend an inordinate amount of time. Judging ourselves. Or others. That's what I want to call us out of today. I want to call us out of our secret life as judges. We have a pretend life. That no one else fully knows. All those categories. That we secretly consider are beneath us. Because we don't participate In that personal list of moral failures You participate in such and such And since I do not I can look down on it I just want to warn you That the bugs will find you You'll be bathing on a Sunday night And suddenly be convicted That you too have failed Jesus And that you're no different Like Dr. Kalanithi You're faced with When you're faced with that which you thought you were only to treat in others. He only thought he was going to treat this in others. He was faced with it himself. You enter an entirely different universe where compassion and kindness begin. We feed our ego or we feed our compassion. We open the door to our secret life and pour more judgment in. Or we fully acknowledge our own brokenness to ourselves and others. And breathe the sweet aroma of Christ. Secret lives of judgment are the death of churches. Terry Hannah from the Presbyterian Church said that people have left her church. Because they wanted her to speak more about moral failure. And less about grace and love. She refuses and they go somewhere else. And Jeff and Jody have faced the same dilemma. It is the braver course to stand firm on how each of us brings brokenness to the table and each of us finds redemption. If we lay it down with honesty and conviction, then we're in this together. We're free to love and receive love, whereas judgment robs us of our responsibility to find meaning in life. We can extend the gift of you're okay the way you are, ...regardless of your color of brokenness. So are you the revealer of deep meaning and value of someone's life? Or are you the litany of criticism toward that person? Each of us is a doctor with our words and attitudes toward one another. We're life-giving or we're life-draining. Why would we orient ourselves toward life-draining? Judgment is cancer... And when we visit on each other and ourselves, we actually rob ourselves of the life that God has promised. The life that we can receive while we're still on earth. If we do the due diligence to pay attention to what really matters, judgment washes away along with the bugs that find us if we stay proud in this life. Sometimes I imagine that each of us is building a villa with our interactions toward others. One builds snarky and closed, secretive and dark, while another builds grace and light-filled and easy and life-giving. If God were to visit our neighborhood of villas, where would he feel welcome to stop for refreshment? As a church, we are a collection of people and their missteps. It makes sense that God would invite us to build each other up inviting the journey to feel valued in the company of jesus like the samaritan woman at the well there's a couple in our church community who have been graciously public about how adultery invaded their marriage they chose life instead of death for their marriage and their family this is redemption at its finest and seems the reason that we even are together to find freedom in confession To know that the bugs of secret judgment can be washed away and that our energy can be fueled by love and acceptance but it's the harder road it is the road facing the death of our personal world of judgment so i'd like to invite liz back up God commissions us in Micah six eight with these words. But He's already made it plain how to live, what to do, what God is looking for in each man each man and woman. It's really quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. God never asks us to be his judges, but he seriously asks us to bear his image of love, carrying it to others, evangelizing with the good news that Jesus knows all about us and yet loves us just the way we are. That is life.